greatness? I wonder how our friends would answer that question. They might say, it depends on what you have. Being great means that you earn a lot, or you have a large family. It depends on the car that you drive. It depends on the house that you live in, the lifestyle that you live. It might be in terms of power, in what you control, how much authority you have in the job that you work in, how many people you're able to boss around, maybe the type of orders you give and the number of people who have to carry them out. Or maybe it's who you know or who you're known by. Can any of these things be a measure of true greatness? Well, in our passage today, Jesus' disciples ask him, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Before we try to work the answer out, uh, Jesus' answer out to that question, let's try and understand the question itself. What is the kingdom of heaven? Let's start with that. Well, the kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom. He is the one in charge. And it's made up of those who recognize his right to rule everything. Everyone who submits to his authority. God is growing his kingdom in this world by graciously bringing men and women, boys and girls, to repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. As more and more people turn away from sin, turn away from rebelling against God, and instead come under the rulership of Jesus, well, so God's kingdom grows. And the disciples wanted to know how greatness would be decided in this growing kingdom. They were very used to the idea of status. They were surrounded by it. In the Roman Empire, at the top, they knew there was Caesar. And at the bottom, there was a slave. The disciples knew the difference between those two. And now they wanted to know how this concept would apply to the kingdom of God. So they ask in verse 1, who is the greatest in God's kingdom? Read with me. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in verses 2 to 14, we have the beginning of Jesus' answer. Now, I've outlined it as follows for this morning. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven, in God's kingdom, means, firstly, understanding our place in the kingdom. That's verses 2 to 5. Secondly, not stumbling others in that kingdom. Verses 6 to 9. And then thirdly and finally, sharing God's concern for others in the kingdom. Verses 10 to 14. And we'll see how those three, excuse me, we'll see how those three are linked together as we go through. So point 1, understand our place with others in God's kingdom. Read with me from verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, before everyone rushes out to the creche, and starts playing with those really cool toys out there, let me explain what Jesus didn't, excuse me, 
Let me explain what Jesus didn't mean when he said, become like little children. He didn't mean that the disciples were to literally become childish. They weren't to go back to age five and start playing with sand again. When Jesus says, become like a child, he's not talking about behavioural traits. He doesn't mean, quit your jobs, move back into your parents' place, and play all day, as much as we'd love to. No, he uses this child, the one standing among them, as an example of dependence. That is the very opposite of what the world views as greatness. To be dependent It's to be small, it's to be pathetic, not to be superior. Children don't run businesses. They can't vote. They don't own cars. They don't own their homes. They don't even own the food that they eat. Andrew's daughters, Hannah and Beth, would go very hungry if Judy, Andrew's wife, didn't actually go and buy any food for the house. Well, so would Andrew, and that would be disastrous, but we're not going to go there. (laughs) Children are totally dependent on their parents and others in order to survive. In order to just get by as citizens in the world. And that is what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. To become even part of the kingdom of God, to even get in the door... They had to become entirely dependent, as if they were kids. Entrance into the kingdom was not about how much money you've got, or what career you have, or the kind of car that you drive. It's not about how other people view you, or how great that you might think you are. Entrance into the kingdom comes through complete dependence, not independence, Or in other words, a a dependence on me, a dependence on who I am and what I've done. Entrance means complete dependence on God's grace. We can only get into God's kingdom by relying on God. Or more specifically, what he has done in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died in our place so that the one thing that was blocking us from entrance into God's kingdom, could be dealt with. Our sin. All members of God's kingdom are part of it by God's grace. Because of his undeserved kindness to us in his son. It's through relying on Jesus' death and resurrection that we are members of this kingdom. If the disciples actually wanted to enter in the first place, They had to be dependent. Their original question was, who's going to be the greatest? What defined greatest as far as God was concerned? And here it is. Now that Jesus had shown them that getting into the kingdom in the first place was only possible by depending on something other than themselves, he goes on to say, end of verse 4, read it with me. Therefore, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is what counted. The greatest in the kingdom would not be someone who thought they were great. The very opposite. It would be the one who knew they weren't. Someone who knew that all their worth 
was bound up in Christ. That's where their real status lied. True greatness meant humbling themselves, depending on Christ and serving others as he did. That's what counted. This is true greatness. That can be more different from the world's concept of greatness, could it? High status in the world says, well, you don't bow down to anyone. You're the one in charge. And everyone carries out your wishes. But not in the kingdom of heaven. To be great is to accept the lowest place. To be the servant of all. And in verse 5, Jesus goes on to tell disciples how humbling themselves, how being truly great, would work out in practice. Verse 5. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name, welcomes me. Well, the first thing they were to do is receive other believers, those who held this same humble status. There was no place for snobbery, for pushing other believers away. They weren't to value their fellow believers like the world does, by their wealth, their health, what kind of music they listen to. Instead, they were to count themselves as the lowest, seeking to serve their brothers and sisters, not turning them away. And that would start by receiving them. What if that's our attitude to one another at smack? Do we view ourselves as servants of each other? Do we count ourselves as lower than each other? Do we harbour that idea that we're just a little bit more superior in certain ways? Because, well, we help more. Well, we give more. Or we work harder. Our attendance is much better. Maybe we believe ourselves to be just a bit more righteous. We'd like to think we're just a little bit better than others in the kingdom. We're just a little higher in the food chain. Well, Jesus says to be great, we need to humble ourselves. And that will start with receiving one another, counting each other as more important. To see ourselves as superior is to misunderstand who we actually are in God's kingdom. The disciples had absolutely no reason to refuse a fellow humble believer. And neither do we. But Jesus not only encourages the disciples to welcome other followers, he also warns them how serious it is to stumble them instead. So on to our second point. Avoid stumbling others in the kingdom. Verse 6. Read it with me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. The phrase translated causes a little one to sin is literally stumbling them, stumbling a little one. The disciples are warned not to be stumbling blocks to their fellow believers, something that could trip them up, causing them to fall into sin. If they were not serving their fellow brothers and sisters as they should, it would be possible that they could stumble them instead. And stumbling another believer Another child of God was serious. It was really, really serious. So serious that Jesus says it would have been better for that person to have died a gruesome death instead. 
to have drowned with a huge millstone hung around their neck. This would have been a better option than causing someone else to stumble into sin. But the disciples were the only source of stumbling for fellow believers. They were all living in a world that was a constant stumbling block for followers of Christ. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. Well, we don't have to try very hard to imagine a world like that. It's the one that we live in today. Until the day we die, or the day our Lord Jesus returns, the world will constantly put forward blocks, uh, stumbling blocks in our paths to stumble us, to cause us to fall into sin. One of the most common examples of this that I've found in Malaysia personally is bribery. It is everywhere, from driving tests to university exam papers. To get ahead in this society, all you have to do is pay a little bribe. Well, bribery is wrong in God's eyes because it promotes injustice. It maligns the poor. It turns a blind eye to what is right if the party doing the wrong is willing to pay. That is one way in which the world we live in, and particularly this country that we live in, can stumble us. Promote opportunities for us to sin, for us to go against God. The world is a great source of stumbling for the believer. But Jesus gives another warning, a further warning, for the man through whom stumbling comes. It is a terrible thing to be the person responsible for tripping up another. But why? Why is it so serious? I mean, we all agree that it's a bad thing. It shouldn't happen. It's a bad thing to do and something to be frowned upon. But it happens, doesn't it? Why get so worked up about this, of all things? Well, stumbling is serious because sin is serious. And how serious is sin? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 8 to 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. There was a bishop many years back who took these verses quite literally. It's a pretty nasty story, and I'll spare you the details, but it's probably not too hard to work out what he did. It's hard to imagine there was much left of him by the end of his life. Jesus is not telling his disciples or us to sever our limbs or pluck out our eyes in order to avoid sinning. Such an action would be totally useless. We read earlier in Matthew 15:19, out of a man's heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and so on and so on. 
We won't solve the problem of our sin by severing our, la- by severing our limbs and plucking out our eyes. They might be stumbling blocks to us, things through which we do stumble and do sin. But the reason why we sin is much, much deeper. Jesus is simply telling his disciples here, in the most graphic possible terms, how serious sin is. That if it were possible to avoid hell by severing an arm or plucking out an eye, boy, it would be worth it. Now, if that's how serious sin is, that you'd rather give an arm or a leg than face the consequences, how much more serious is it to actually be the cause of someone else's sin? To be a stumbling block to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. The stakes could not be higher. It's life or death. It could mean heaven or hell. That is why Jesus' warning in verse 6 isn't over the top. It would be better for that stumbling block of a man to die a gruesome death than to lead a fellow believer astray because of where that stumbling will lead to. Do we take stumbling others that seriously? I'll give you an example. What if we are with a brother or sister who finds it hard to control They're drinking once they start. The best way for them to remain godly, remain faithful to their Lord, is not to drink at all, isn't it? If we drink right in front of them, if we make it easy for them to join us, then what we're actually doing is being a stumbling block to them. We're leading them into sin. Better for us to die than do that, Jesus says. We need to be making every effort to ensure that we are not stumbling one another. There are enough stumbling blocks out in the world without us adding to them. No, instead, we're to be accepting and encouraging one another, promoting godliness for our actions, not sin. So far we've seen that being great in God's kingdom means firstly to understand our place in the kingdom as dependent, humble servants of Christ and each other. And secondly, it's practicing this humbleness by serving rather than stumbling each other. We're going to move on to our final point, sharing God's concern for others in God's kingdom. Would you look up verse 10? With me. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Well, if the disciples looked down or despised fellow believers, they would be going totally against Jesus' command to accept them, wouldn't they? They had no right to look down on a fellow brother or sister in Christ? How could they look down on someone they were to consider more important than themselves? But this wasn't the only reason for why they were to avoid despising each other. Not only would it go against what Christ had told them, it would be go against their Heavenly Father's wishes 
as well. Jesus warns the disciples that if one of these little ones, if one of these fellow humble believers are despised, their father in heaven will know about it. Now, whether there is an angel for each believer, or three angels who represent all the believers in heaven, or whether the angel represents something totally different, it actually doesn't matter for us to understand this. Any one of those theories could be true. But the point that Jesus wants to make is that every humble believer, every little one, has the same standing before the king. He uses the language of a courtroom, saying, their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. It's another way of saying all these little ones have unhindered access. The kind that in a human kingdom would be reserved for advisors or dignitaries or VIPs. Not us guys. But there is no barrier between the citizen and God in God, excuse me, in God's kingdom. The only barrier, which was sin, that separated us from God has been broken. It's been abolished through the blood of Jesus on the cross. No believer has greater or lesser standing before their heavenly father. We are all seen by him equally and loved by him infinitely. And we're shown exactly how much God cares for every single one of these little ones in verses 12 to 14. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story of the lost sheep. But I believe particularly in the way it's put in our passage today, this lost sheep refers to a wandering sheep. One who in verse 12 represents a believer who has stumbled. One of God's little ones who has been tripped up by the world, by another believer, or by themselves. One way or another, they have stumbled into sin. And this sin that they've committed has led them, has led them to wandering away from God's flock. So what does God do? Does he say, oh well, I got most of them. They're not very significant, little, they're very insignificant little creatures anyway. They're quite small, quite pathetic. It doesn't really matter if we lose a couple over the whole history of time. I got 99. What's one more? Is that God's reaction to this straying believer? No. God cares infinitely for each individual little one. Every single believer he has called to himself in Jesus Christ. Every little sheep. They are his. It is his kingdom and he cares for each of its members deeply. The world's concept of the good of the many outweighs the good of the few simply does not apply here. God will go after that one sheep and seek to bring them back. 
And should that sheep return, he will rejoice. It brings him greater joy to see the straying sheep back in the pen than all the other 99 who never left, who never strayed. He's not willing to lose one of these little ones to see any of them stumble into sin and be lost. It's both a great encouragement and a great challenge to us who are believers here today. It's an an encouragement because we see what actually holds God's kingdom together. It's God himself. Not random events, pure chance. God is the one who builds and sustains his kingdom. All of us who are Christians here are here because of our king. It is him who has brought us into his kingdom. It is him who keeps us in his kingdom. This is the kind of king that we have. One who is not passive and uncaring about his subjects. One who is active and deeply caring about all of his subjects. All those in the kingdom. Every single one. And so to despise a fellow believer is to part company with the king. If it is our Heavenly Father's will that not one of these, not one, should be lost, then that should be our will as well. Friends, brothers and sisters around us will stumble. Like that sheep, they will wander away from safety at times. Because of the world, because of a fellow believer, because of their own fault. And when we see that happening to another member of the kingdom, we're not to look down on them. We're not to despise them, to sneer and to think ourselves, I'd never do that. What a pitiful Christian. If that's our response, it shows we haven't understood the kingdom. And more to the point, we haven't understood our king, God himself. No, we're to seek to restore fellow brothers and sisters, to warn them of the seriousness of sin and gently bring them back to the truth. Not despise them and count ourselves as greater. By doing that, we'll be showing we're the very opposite, that we're not great at all. Are we looking up one another at smack? Do we notice if someone is falling into sin? And if so, do we do anything about it? Do we seek to help them, to gently warn them? What about if someone's been missing for a few weeks? There's a possibility that they could be wandering away. Do we give them a call? Do we make sure they're all right? We need to be sensitive to each other. We need to be looking after one another, encouraging one another, and especially looking out for those who we fear are falling at the wayside. I'm greatly encouraged by the love between brothers and sisters here at SMAC. The way it's witnessed and how we serve one another, speak to one another, actively care and provide for one another. Let's be sure that we're showing that same love for all members of the kingdom. Not just us guys here. Not just those whom we find comfortable here. But all those who are humbly trusting in Christ. We need to be on our guard against rejecting and despising fellow brothers and sisters. We've seen where that can lead to. Better to die than to be responsible for stumbling them. So as we wrap up, 
What does it mean to be great in God's kingdom? Well, firstly, it's to understand our place in the kingdom as dependent, humble servants of Christ and each other. Secondly, it's to receive fellow brothers and, fellow brothers and sisters instead of stumbling them into sin. We're to be avoiding that at all costs. Thirdly and finally, is to have God's concern for others in the kingdom. Rather than looking down on one another, despising one another, we're to serve each other. We're to watch out for and gently restore those who we realise are wandering away. Jesus Christ himself is the perfect example of this humble greatness. He fulfills those three points perfectly. He was the ultimate humble servant. Though he was God, he became man, counting himself lower for our sakes. Instead of leading us into sin, he saved us from it through his death on the cross. He is the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his sheep. That is how much he cares for us. He rescued us when we were lost in the darkness of our own sin. Jesus is by far the greatest in the kingdom. Let's ask God now to help us follow his example this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us part of your kingdom. Thank you for bringing us to dependence in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that through his death and resurrection, uh, we are justified. Thank you so much uh, for cleansing us of our sin uh, through his blood. Please help us to follow his example of true greatness this week. Would we be those who receive one another rather than stumble one another, who restore instead of despising each other? Please strengthen us to be great members of your kingdom this week. For your glory. Amen.